Good afternoon, everybody. My name is David Sum, and I'm a director in the Alternative Income Group here at Nine Point. Uh, for those of you who don't know us at Nine Point, we are a uh, Canadian alternative investment firm based in Toronto, where we target investment strategies that are uncorrelated from traditional asset classes. Currently, we manage over $8 billion of assets under management and institutional contracts. Now, today, we're really pleased to have Nick Caprianu come join us and share his thoughts on the real estate and mortgage market. It's obviously been a very interesting time in, in this market space with the constant rising rate environment. And Nick, being an expert in the mortgage industry, was really can provide his views on what he sees both in the near term and medium term. So Nick is the president and CEO of River Rock Mortgage Investment Corporation. Prior to, River, prior to founding River Rock, Nick was the CEO at Equity Financial Trust. Nick brings a unique perspective of being a seasoned lender who's, who has experience across different market cycles. So with that, Nick, I'd like to turn it over to you and really get your thoughts on what are you seeing in the mortgage market and where are you seeing the market move in both the short term and uh, medium term? Okay, Th thanks, David. Um, the, the first slide is just about mortgage investment corporations in general, um, how it's formed in the Tax Act, and it's a very efficient way to um, for mix to produce a high return because they don't pay a, a tax, it's a flow through. Um, and then it's a, I'll kind of I'll explain to you why we got into River Rock in 2014 is when we founded it. I, I, I started um, Equity Financial Trust, which is now named Haventry Bank. They changed the name a couple of years ago. Uh, when I started that company, um, that uh, alternative mortgage space was a, was a great space to be in. The banks kind of had their space, and then when it didn't get approved by the banks, you had companies like Home Trust, Equitable Bank, and you know Equity Financial Trust that I started, um, kind of scooping up that next level after the bank said no. But then what happened is in, 20, uh, in 2012, the banks got very prescriptive, and they, they changed the regulation for regulated companies at that time and became very prescriptive. What happened is they introduced what they call B20, and B20 was the residential underwriting guidelines and policies for alternative mortgages. So what they did is they created a um, definition of alternative mortgages, and they said if it meets that definition, then you, have, you can't do more than 65% loan to value, and here's all the documents you need to move forward with that deal. The stress testing is also part and parcel of that, that you, that, that you read about in the papers or hear in the news all the time. That's part and parcel of the B20 where they have to qualify at the rate plus 200 basis points um, to qualify for the mortgage. And then in, in 2013, they introduced B21, which were the um, insured residential guidelines for mortgages. And what they did there is they said you could no longer get mortgage insurance on a property valued at a million dollars or greater and they would no longer insure refinances. So that created a tremendous amount of opportunities um, for a company like River Rock, because what we did is we stepped in to that place 
where the home trust, the equitable banks, uh, the Haventry banks, community trust were pushed out of that space because of the regulators. Um, <clears throat> so I'll just uh, I'll just talk briefly about uh, prices, and I'll go back to this. So you know, during the pandemic, we saw this crazy rise of about 38% over a two-year period of real estate values. And that happened for a couple of reasons. One is the federal government was throwing money around like junk, drunken sailors out to everybody. Also, people didn't have expenses anymore. They weren't traveling. They weren't going out to dinner. Uh, they weren't buying clothes. So all of a sudden, they had this tremendous amount of savings on top of the government throwing money at them. And they really saw this as an opportunity to get into the housing market. And, and that's what they did, and that's why you saw a massive increase in values over that two-year period. Um, but then <clears throat> what happened was, and this, happened, this has happened since forever with respect to rates, whenever the Bank of Canada would um, mention that they would be increasing the rates, you always get an influx of buyers into the space trying to beat the rates, get their mortgages pre-approved before the rate increase. So the Bank of Canada said that they were going to take, at the beginning of the year, said they were going to take an aggressive stance on rate increases to curb inflation to get it back down, you know, when it was very high, and then they wanted to get it to 2%, which isn't realistic, and they, they increased the rate, you know, almost 400 basis points, or they did increase 400 basis points over the beginning of this year. So what you happen to see for the first five months of the year is what I refer to as this irrational exuberance, where people were just trying to get into the housing market for fear of missing out and trying to get rates locked up with the banks so they could get into the housing market. Um, so this irrational exuberance caused a rapid increase in values. Um, some areas uh, experienced a much greater increase in values than others. For example, at the beginning of the year, the two areas that we identified that were, that were getting a little out of hand was the Brampton area and the Durham region, which is um, Oshawa, Pickering, Ajax. So we kind of backed away from those two pockets very dramatically. Um, we were still cautious in all the other markets, but we were extremely cautious in those two markets. And if you look at the market today, you know, in both of those markets, you probably had a 15 to 20 percent pullback in values. Um, not as bad in other areas like the core of the city, the Young Street corridor. Um, you haven't had the same kind of uh, pullback in values. Um, and there's lots of reasons for that that I can go into. But, you know, part of it is homes only come up for sale once a generation and, and things of that nature. So it's a much different marketplace. But um, they've had a bit of a softening, but nothing like a Brampton or the Durham region has. And, and then other areas have, have experienced different levels of softening. Um, <clears throat> now, the positive, you know, there's lots of negatives. You know, the, the Bank of Canada increased the rates pretty dramatically. Um, but what are the positives? Well, the positives are is the federal government's committed to immigration increasing from 400,000 to 500,000 until 2025, um, over a three-year period. And, and the immigrants that come today to Canada are much different than the immigrants that came to Canada in the 50s and 60s when my family came to Canada. Um, immigrants back then didn't have education. They didn't have money. They generally had trades and, and a hard work ethic. 
Um, the people today that are coming to Canada are very educated and come with cash. So they hit the housing market very quickly. So that's one of the things that, that's going to underpin the housing market. Also, the fact that there's an undersupply of housing in Ontario and in Canada is another factor. And evident that what proves that even more is the fact that rental rates have gone up about 17% this year. So what happened is a lot of people that were looking to purchase with all this rate increase activity and the values getting a little crazy, people said, you know what, I'm going to rent, I'm going to sit on the bench and wait till things settle down because people generally don't like to purchase during uncertainty. They like to purchase during certainty. So what's happened there is, is um, people kind of flooded the rental market and that's kind of driven that up by 17% because once again, there's an undersupply of housing in the country. So all, as far as River Rock is concerned, we do all of our lending exclusively in Ontario. <clears throat> Ontario is the biggest market in, in Canada. It's about 65% of the mortgage market. Um, we only lend in urban, suburban areas in Ontario. We don't lend on rural properties. We don't lend in small towns. We like properties that look like everybody else on the street except for maybe the color of the brick or the siding or the landscaping. Um, the reason we like that is one is they're very easy to evaluate because there's lots of comparables. They all look pretty much the same. You just have to make minor adjustments for condition and things like that. And the other reason is if something does happen, they're easy to sell because they're highly marketable because they're in areas where everybody wants to live. And, and that's really kind of the foundation of our business, highly marketable, middle-class homes in urban suburban areas in Ontario. Um, that, that's kind of what our whole premise has been, and that's why we've been able to go almost nine years without a loss. Um, so there's a lot of talk over, over debt recently in the papers. You know, the one number that keeps coming out is, you know, debt load is 183% of income, where I find that kind of um, a stat that doesn't really give you much information. For example, mortgages are amortized debt, so generally people are paying over a 25-year period. This takes the debt in, in one calendar year and your income over that one calendar year. It doesn't look at the fact that it's amortized. It also doesn't look at the fact of the equity component. So for example, if a person makes 50000 a year and they have a $100,000 mortgage, but their house is worth a million dollars, they go, that guy has 200% in debt load. Um, but they don't take into account that he's got $900,000 in equity, uh, and, and that's amortized that $100,000. So the, 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 the stat is a bit not informative. It basically is a bit confusing, if anything else. Um, over the last two years during the pandemic, you know, it was record, or record low arrears. Like at River Rock, we had like the lowest arrears I've ever seen in my life anywhere. Like it was, it almost seemed odd that people were paying, um, that there was no problems with anybody. Um, so, you know, we're starting to see a little bit more arrears now, but nothing very significant at all. Um, nothing to be uh, alarmed and we're still very low compared to the industry average and our arrears are probably even lower than the banks for that matter. Um, hey, hey Nick, just, just touching upon that point, um, you know, you you read in the you read in the media right now that there's to your point that 
there's been a tightening of credit, especially amongst the banks for for people seeking new mortgages. Um, from your perspective and from River Rock's client uh, perspective, how has that affected the pipeline? And, and can you comment a little bit more about the, the credit profile of those uh, potential borrowers who are approaching River Rock uh, to get mortgages? Sure, that's a good question. So <clears throat> during this calendar year, um, our quality of business has increased dramatically. And there's a couple of reasons for that. One is, you know, banks started to tighten up this year because of inflation, because of, um, um, because of rates going up. Also, the stress testing had an impact. As rates go up, then you have to add another 200 basis points to the qualifying uh, rate for people. That makes more people not qualified anymore. So we would, we would see files that were pre-approved with a bank. But rates were increasing so rapidly, by the time it came to closing, the banks would inform them that they're no longer approved. So we found this year our quality of business has risen dramatically. Um, a lot of people, a lot of purchases, um, really the only problem with these people, good credit, good income, is just that they didn't meet the stress testing re requirements. So from that standpoint, we've been, we've been very fortunate. The other thing that's going on a lot of the residential mix out there, and this is the big differentiator in the space. When you look at the mix landscape in Canada, I always say it kind of divides into two buckets. You've got the, the, the big mix, like a firm capital. Um, you've got an atrium. These, these big mix that do commercial, industrial, construction, mezzanine-type financing, um, they're doing like $250 million mortgages, construction mortgages on a condominium corporation. Um, and when you look at the management teams of those companies, they're very sophisticated. A lot of them came from the bank background. They understand credit, market risk, credit risk. Um, they're very sophisticated. When you look at the residential MIC landscape in Canada, it, it's, it's quite different. Um, the vast majority of the MICs um, in, in Canada are, are residential MICs are run by mortgage brokers. So they had a successful mortgage brokerage operation, and they said, oh, let's add a MIC to the to the wheelhouse, and this will be a complimentary to our business, and we'll make some extra money. But when you look at the, the bios of these people, um, they don't have any credit risk, market risk, no institutional experience whatsoever, and they've been in the business 10 years or less, so they really haven't experienced any cycles. Um, so that creates a big problem. Like, I, you know, you look at the websites, a lot of them don't even list the bios or who the management team is which I find odd. And if they do, um, they've got no relevant experience. So it's very difficult um, to, to find experienced management teams like we have here at River Rock, who everybody here came from an institutional background um, and they've been around for a long time and they've seen various credit cycles. So um, it's not hard to make adjustments very quickly. Um, yeah, Nick, I, I think so, that's a really interesting point just about your background of being a, uh, uh, really a, a lender who's lent in different market cycles. Um, so maybe based on that experience, can you talk a little bit more about in the situations where there are um, workouts required in the portfolio, how that experience as a, as a seasoned lender helps you avo A, avoid those situations, and B, uh, if those situations do arise in, in, the, in the very few cases, how that experience helps you to work out 
work out those situations uh, and get back the, the principal for the investors. Sure. So first I'll just kind of talk about the various cycles. So if you looked at, um, I, I got in the mortgage business in 1986 after university, but my family was very involved in, in owning a lot of commercial real estate in the early 80s when rates went up to 21%. And, and, and that didn't kind of unfold too too well for my family, but because uh, it was very rapid, but it was really kind of a stall that 80, 81, almost 82, um, you know, and during that time, the next big uh, change, big thing that happened was really 90 to 1995. That was the big kind of meltdown in residential real estate and commercial real estate. And so if you look back at that time, there was multiple triggers. So, yeah, they rates go from nine to fifteen percent. You had unemployment in Ontario over twelve percent. You had manufacturers leaving Ontario to the southern states of Mexico because of high provincial taxes. You had mass speculation in the real estate market. So back then, you could get financing to build a townhouse complex or a condominium tower with zero presale, and then. Um, the developers would sell units with $500 down payment and the rest of the funds wouldn't have to be put up until the um, building was complete. So people would drive up and say, oh, why buy one when I can buy five for $2,500? And, and that kind of was a disaster, right? Because people were hoping they were going to be able to flip all these properties um, by the time they closed. But when you factor in rates going up so dramatically, unemployment up so dramatically, you know, factories and places closing down. Then you had an NDP government that won a majority that created absolute chaos in the province in the early 90s, and it was a real nightmare. Uh, you know, commercial values dropped 50%, residential values dropped, you know, around 25%, some areas a little more, some areas a little less. And that's where we really developed our, our, our model at, at River Rock from that period of time. Because at, when I was at Home Trust back then, we had a real mixed bag portfolio. We were doing, um, you know, single purpose industrial buildings, banquet centers, strip motels, uh, C-grade strip malls, and houses. And, and our arrears was, you know, escalating at a very rapid rate. And we said, we need to pivot. What's working? And what we did is we kind of drilled down through the portfolio. And one thing that we found performed extremely well during that terrible market was residential properties owner-occupied, especially middle class. Um, and there was multiple reasons for that. We kind of drilled down to kind of figure out why. And, you know, there's a couple of, well, there's multiple reasons for that. One is, one is uh, when the paper and news is saying every day that values are dropping, people always believe their neighbor's house is dropping. They don't believe their own house is dropping. Um, you know, there's a real emotional attachment to your home. It's your family lives in it. The kids go to school in the community. Um, so you, you have an emotional value to that house, which is greater than what the value probably is. Secondly, if you do run into some problems, people become resourceful. Um, they take on a second job. They change their lifestyle. They go to family for help. They take on a board or a tenant. They do whatever they have to do to make it work. So... That's what we saw in the early 90s. And sure, there are some people that lost their homes, no question about it, but, um, but people made it work. The other thing that they don't talk about in the news at all, um, and they probably do this because they don't want to create a big influx of it happening, but in the, in the early 90s, if you look at the stats, there was record numbers of bankruptcies. 
So what happens in a bankruptcy is you basically wipe out all your unsecured creditors. However, if you have a mortgage and you pay, you keep making your mortgage payments, and the lender agrees, you can keep in your you can keep your house and continue to make the mortgage payments. So all of a sudden, you've made a situation much better for yourself. You've eliminated all your unsecured creditors, and you still got your house. So they don't talk about that much, but that's what I I start I I think what we'll see in the summer of this of 23 is you'll start to start reading about a big escalation in bankruptcies um, and people wiping out their unsecured creditors. Um, so that's what I see happening then. The last um, time we saw some sort of you know interruption in in housing was uh, well two other times one in the 2008-2009 liquidity crisis, but really the values just kind of flatlined. They softened a little bit, but nothing really meaningful. And then at the beginning of 2017, you saw a bit of softening when what happened then was the provincial government said they were going to introduce cooling housing measures, and OSFI, um, the regulator for all the banks and trust companies, said they were going to tweak the stress testing, make it a little harder. And what you had then is, once again, this irrational exuberance in the first half of 2017, because OSFI and the province said they wouldn't make the changes till mid-2017. And the area that we kind of viewed then is the high-risk area that was, you know, experienced irrational exuberance was the Vaughan area, which is north of Toronto. And we backed away from that area. And that, you know, that area went up about 10 15%, and then kind of backed off that 10 15%. Um, so we, we backed away from that, so we didn't get caught there. Um, so that, that's how we see going forward now. Um, you know, we're very careful on how we lend, uh, and which I'll go into in, in a bit. But if you see the breakdown of our properties, you know, predominantly detached townhouse, semis, and then condos, um, we, we stay in the major trading areas. Um, GTA, Hamilton Kitchener, Waterloo, St. Catharines, Niagara Region, and a little bit in Barrie. But we, but we really stick to subdivision stuff. What I say is pee in the pod. We like everybody to look the same. Um, very easy to deal with. All, we have a partnership with First Canadian Title. They're the largest title insurance in North America. Um, they've been around for a little over 100 years. We're on their portal, so they instruct the lawyer for us. They do all the interacting with the lawyer. They instruct the lawyer, they collect all the documents, they review them, we review them, and if we're satisfied, um, they issue a certificate of insurance, and then we wire them the money, they in turn disperse the money. But what it does is it protects us against any kind of fraud or title issues or solicitor's errors or anything like that, and, and that's made us uh, created a lot of efficiency here. If we didn't have first the partnership with FCT, we would need at least two additional employees. Um, so. That, that's, um, that's kind of the breakdown on that. Um, our portfolio is over $250 million. Um, we've got over 600 mortgages on the portfolio. Um, it's an eight-year track record, but in, we're almost at we're, um, eight and a half, solid eight and a half, uh, with zero losses. And we've made, we pay a dividend every month we've been in business. Um, so what I'll, I'll do now is I'll talk briefly about our process. So. Right now, all of our business comes to us through licensed mortgage brokers and agents. Um, they come through the various portals and they come right into our software so they get uploaded. Then somebody just um, 
assigns them to the appropriate underwriter. I saw a question here, are underwriters on salaried or commission? All of our employees are salaried employees, and they, um, there's a bonus paid at the end of the year, but that's depending on how well they do and how well the company does. But the underwriters have no um, um, approval authority on any, of the, on any of the mortgages. They're basically just interacting with the mortgage brokers, collecting the documentation, underwriting it and recommending, but they don't get to approve. So then it goes to the, uh, on every single deal, two people have to sign the approval. Um, two people have to look at it. My philosophy is anybody can have a bad day. So if you have two people review and sign off on every deal, uh, something will get caught if it gets missed. Um, then we issue the, uh, the commitment and they have to, the broker has to use one of our approved appraisers up from our approved appraiser list. So once again, like I said earlier, just because they're on our approved appraiser list doesn't mean they can't have a bad day. So this is kind of our real differentiator at River Rock. We have this, trip, this deep dive triple check methodology on appraisal. So when the appraisals come in to us, they're, you know, they're full narrative reports with comparables. We do a deep dive and, and triple check everything and do our own market analysis. So if we disagree, we'll go back to the appraiser and say, we've found some additional data. We think you're optimistic. Sometimes we agree, but if we agree to disagree, we go with our number, which would obviously be lower. But this is very important part of our process. The other thing we do before the mortgage is approved is Taking the philosophy, like I mentioned earlier, bad things happen to good people all the time. People get sick, they die, they lose their job, they get divorced, things happen. So what we look at is we say, okay, say this deal cracks next month, uh, something bad happened to these people, um, we reverse engineer the numbers. So we know what all the friction costs are. We also take market trends into account. We reverse engineer the numbers and we say, do we have a clear path to getting out? If we don't see a clear path to getting out, we either reduce the mortgage amount or we decline the loan altogether. Um, and then before funding uh, or before the other part we do, uh, before final approval is every borrower is interviewed. Um, the deals come to us through mortgage brokers. We like to interview the borrowers ourselves just to go over everything, make sure we have all the information correct, what they're doing with the money, and to just get a sense of them that way. Um, that's just another check on the uh, on the process and as I mentioned like two people have to sign every deal out of the credit committee um, as I mentioned you know we're 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 completely focused on marketable real estate um, as I mentioned at the beginning we only lend in Ontario and one of the reasons we only lend in Ontario is not pe many people are aware of this but Ontario is the most lender friendly province in Canada um, Western Canada uses a foreclosure process. Uh, it takes about a year to get permission from a judge to list a house. Judges are very empathetic and sympathetic with homeowners. So if they go to the judge and they say they need another 90 days, they generally get it. Quebec uses a civil law. It's a bit slow. And as a lender, you've got to eat most of the costs. Maritimes use an old English law from the late 1800s. Very slow and laborious. Ontario uses a power of sale process. What that means is at day 16 of arrears, you can commence legal action. And then you uh, go through the process. 
Uh, historically, it was taking about 120 to 180 days to get possession, vacant possession. Um, the court system is a little slower right now, and I think that's, um, I think, you know, judges have retired. I think, you know, and I think this is the case in every industry. You know, when the pandemic started, um, people that were planning on retiring decided not to retire because they go, what else am I going to do? I'm locked in my house. So they kept working. Then when the pandemic ended, these people retired. So we've, I, I think we've seen that with judges. A lot of these judges have retired. There's, a lot of them are still working out of their home. They're not going into the office. So you've got less judges. They're working out of their home. They're not dealing with as many uh, cases during the, during the day as they have historically. Also, you know, you always get the technology challenges. So it slowed things down a bit. So we're finding that um, it's not taking 180. In some cases, it could be taking, you know, seven, eight months to uh, get permission or get a vacant uh, sheriff to go out to, to evict these people. So it slowed down a bit, and we've also we've modeled that now. Oh, we were we were modeling that in before the pandemic started, like kind of a 12-month delay when we did our modeling um, on our exit strategy and our underwriting. So that's, that's kind of kept us in good stead. Um, and just to talk briefly about our, our, our collection process, we're very aggressive on the collection process. So if somebody misses a payment or bounces a payment, we call them immediately. If they don't respond, we leave a voicemail message. Following day, we send them an email. If they don't respond to that, we send a courier letter out to their house. If they don't respond to any of those three things, day 16, we send the file to our lawyer to commence a legal action. Um, that usually gets the person communicating. Um, if they don't, uh, if, if they are communicating with us, we allow them to go 30 days, but if they haven't resolved the problem by making their payment within 30 days, we place them in legal action because our attitude is, if they couldn't come up with a $1,000 payment, how are they going to come up with a $2,000 payment? So it really kind of just gets the motivation going for these people. Because I always say, you're, it's the hierarchy of debt. Your house is at the top of the pyramid, so you should be dealing with that. Unfortunately, there's a certain group of the population that they manage their life by crisis. Um, so whatever the biggest crisis is, is that what they deal with? So what we do is, by putting them in legal action, we become their biggest crisis in their life, and then they, and then they solve it. We've been doing a kind of a deep dive analysis over the last eight and a half years on people we've put in legal action. And, and basically it turns out if, if all the people we put in legal action, only about 10% of the properties we actually sell, 90% of the borrowers self-correct by either bringing it up to date, refinancing and paying us out or selling the house on their own. So it's, it's a good strategy um, for us to take um, because time is money and the longer these things go, the potential for a loss, especially when markets are shifting. Um, here um, it shows the class F share since 19, 2018 to, to current. Um, the reason we don't go back to 2014, we didn't introduce the class F share until 2018. Prior to that, we were only issuing a class A share. And if you go into our website, um, you can and look under investor and then fact sheets, you can see the class A share and get the data on that. Um, so this year, uh, we're going to be a little over 7%. And I think um, I, I sent a letter, I don't know if everybody's seen this, but as of February 1, we are moving the F class target yield to 8%. 
um, with the, if you participate in the drip, that takes you to an 8.3% effective uh, February 1st. Um, the other thing that we do that I don't know other mix do is we pay out our target yield first and we take our management fee second. So, for example, if there's some interest rate drag or cost um, and it doesn't cover, we take it out of our management fee. We don't pass that cost on to the investors. Um, we eat that cost as a management team. Um, and then uh, now we're ready for questions and answers. So, David, did you want to ask me the questions uh, that are coming in? Yeah, sure. Thanks, Nick. Uh, so one of the questions we have here, it's an interesting one. Um, so it says, you know, based on your, based on your underwriting uh, and strategy, uh, you know, in terms of what is your view for the portfolio as loans start to mature and you start to turn over the portfolio. Um, so I guess that otherwise, in terms of the portfolio going forward, where are you seeing it both in terms of uh, both in terms of types of properties that uh, that would be the, the focus area of the portfolio? And then uh, correspondingly, where are you seeing uh, in terms of yields, how that will uh, affect both from a credit perspective and, and yield perspective for the portfolio? as it starts to turn over going, uh, going forward into the year, into the new year. Sure. Okay, great. Um, yeah, so, you know, one thing that has surprised me this year, you know, one of the things we did is, you know, is we, um, all of our mortgages are one-year term, right, or less. So part of that is, you know, so you can manage interest rate risk, as, which has been especially important this year with rates escalating so quickly, um, and then also creates liquidity in the portfolio. Um, at the end, uh, in, in the second half of last year, we started offering a lot of six-month mortgages because we just had a sense that Bank of Canada was going to start increasing yields. Um, we didn't anticipate this much and this aggressive, but we did anticipate rate increases. So we did a lot of six months the second half of last year, which has helped us maintain our target yield. Um, the other thing that's been quite surprising is you know we've been renewing people at much higher rates all year and and i would have thought we would have got a lot more phone calls saying oh can you do something better with the rate and all, but but people have just been signing them and paying like we haven't had many calls at all and people are just paying the new the new yield so that's been a that's been a pleasant surprise um and it's been a little bit surprising um, but that's been nice. Um, we're always, we're, you know, we're, with our files, we review the file, and if they're making their payments, we just offer the renewal, obviously, at the higher rates, what the market is at the time. But um, if, if, they're, if they've been a real problem file, then we say to them, we're not renewing. But I, I, it's only happened probably three times where we're not renewing somebody. A vast majority of people are paying. Um, or making a, a great effort to pay. They may miss a payment here or there during a year, but they make it up quickly. Um, so we're not having that kind of prob problem. Um, we were getting a higher payout percentage, obviously, last year. The percentage of payout is reduced somewhat this year, obviously, because rates have gone up. And, they, you know, if rates didn't move, they would have qualified for the bank and gone back to the bank. But unfortunately, because of rates increasing, um, they don't qualify at the bank, so they got to stay with us a little longer. 
like I always say, we're a parking lot. People come to us because they had an issue that prevented them from going to the bank. That might have been the stress testing, stopping them from qualifying. That could have been they were self-employed and they couldn't verify all the income that satisfied the bank requirements, or they had some soft credit um, that gets resolved. So people resolve these issues, and then the goal is to go back to the bank. However, because of these rapid rate increases, our payouts are, are reducing because they, don't, they can't go somewhere. Um, so that's what we're, we've been seeing this year. Great. Here's another question related to that. So, in, related to the rapid rate um, rate hikes, where what's your opinion in terms of future rate hikes, uh, if any, going forward? And if there are, what do you think? What do you anticipate the pace to be? Yeah. So, so this is this is an interesting question. So, when he did the last increase uh, this month, you know, I wasn't overly thrilled with the language um, that he used. Like I was expecting him to say, I think we're done now and we're going to sit back and wait. He kind of said they're going to watch, watch the data more closely now, but he didn't, he didn't give this kind of feeling like we're done. Um, so we'll see next month when they, when they uh, have their meeting again and see what they come out with. I think that you know, the Bank of Canada is always looking in their rearview mirror, and they're at like 20,000, 30,000 feet. Um, I'm at the ground level, and I'm seeing things a little differently. Like, I think we're already in the recession. Um, it's, you're not going to see these rates impact people probably to the summer. So one of the big, thing that's, big things that are going on, and the paper, the Globe has touched on it very briefly over the last couple of weeks, but I don't think that they're even understanding um, what, what's going on. So I have two individuals in my office that got mortgages in Q4 last year, and they took variable rate mortgages, right? So they were watching... Um, they were watching their statement every month. They'd go online and look at their statement, and as these rates kept on increasing, you know, their amortization kept on going up and up and up, and then all of a sudden, they, there's no more amortization. So, obviously, they were just making interest-only payments. So, both of them hit all the triggers that were in the contract. Like, they should have been contacted by the bank to increase their payments. So, both of them reached out to the bank and said, like, why hasn't my payment gone up yet? And they said, you know, we're, we're looking at these things on a case-by-case -case basis. So if we think that, um, um, that your loan-to-value is low and you have a, a fair bit of equity, we'll let you go to interest only. And if you start to go above that, we might increase your payment just a bit to um, accommodate that. Um, so... What's, what that means is, is the banks are wanting to ride this out for a couple of years, right? Because if they were really doing these increases based on the mortgage contract, people's payments would be doubling. But the banks don't want to create this crisis in the marketplace. Also, the banks have a reputational risk. They don't want to be on the front page of the globe saying they're, they're doubling people's mortgage payments and kicking them out of their houses. So they've kind of got this civic responsibility because they're an oligopoly to kind of play the game. Now, on the flip side of that, I know an individual that bought a house at the beginning of the year uh, for $5.2 million and took a $4 million mortgage with a bank and took a variable rate, and he was notified a couple of months ago that his payments were going to go from sixteen dollars to 22000 
So the banks don't have any trouble slamming that person because they don't have to worry about that guy going to the Globe saying, look what the bank did to me because the bank's not going to, uh, people aren't going to feel too sorry for a guy buying a house for $5.2 million with his payments going from 16 to 22. But they are going to feel sorry for the person that his payments has gone from 1000 to 2000 They can relate to that. So I, I think that's what the banks are doing. Um, so a lot of these rate increases, we're not going to, the pain that the Bank of Canada is looking for isn't going to happen for a while because banks are basically pulling back. Um, both uh, CMHC and the mortgage insurers have already said to the lenders on insured mortgages, they can write them, rewrite the mortgages to 30-year amortizations to keep people's payments down. So you had a 25, 20-year amor, you're down to 15 years uh, on your amortization, and all of a sudden your payments double, they'll let you rewrite the loan out to 30 years. Um, so that's keeping it down. So where the pain's going to start to happen is like when car leases come due or car loans are floating and, and lines of credits, and like this will take longer to work its way through the system. Also, people buy during certainty. They don't buy during uncertainty. So as long as the Bank of Canada isn't being kind of taking a stand, people are just going to sit on the bench and do nothing, right? So uh, if the Bank of Canada at the end of January says, I think we're done, um, there might be a small little increase left, then I think that the, there'll be a bit of a spring market. I'm not seeing an increase in values, but I'm seeing more activity. Um, but if they're, if they're very negative at the end of January, um, I think the market could soften a little bit more and there'll be less activity. You know, like I think you know, this goal of 2% inflation, getting inflation down to 2% is a completely unrealistic goal. Like it's not achievable in the next couple of years for multitude of reasons. But like I don't know why they have this fictitious goal. Um, but, but like on the flip side of things, though, like that's a very negative kind of story. But the positives are, like I mentioned earlier, immigration coming to Canada, they got to live somewhere. The other positive is there's record number of savings. Another positive is, you know, record unemployment in the fives. Even if unemployment went into the high sixes, that's still incredibly low. Um, the other factor is people have a tremendous amount of equity in their homes. The vast majority of people have a tremendous amount of equity in their homes. So there's lots of, lots of things they can do to get over this speed bump. Um, so there's, there's, there's lots of positives that are underpinning the market and the undersupply of housing, but, but, but people aren't going to start getting out there and buying until they feel comfortable that the Bank of Canada is kind of leveled out. Um, because if you look historically, these rates aren't that crazy. They're, they're not bad rates. Um, it's just, you know, when you went from almost, you know, a zero to, to this, it's, it's, it's a pretty dramatic shift. But historically, they're not that bad. Um, so I think that, you know, next year could be just a flat year, maybe a bit more softening, and then uh, in certain pockets, but then 24 will be a better market. That's why we're lucky. There's lot less competition in the mix space. A lot of mixer don't have the capital. Um, banks are tightening up. So we've just kind of shifted our model to a better quality of business. Um, and, and that's what's going to get us through it. Like our, our quality of business is better. You know, we're watching our loan to values. Our average loan to value is 68% even. 
Um, you know, we two in in August 2021, our average loan to value was 69.8%, and at the end of August 2022, it was 67.6%. So we brought our average loan to value down a little over 2% over that 12-month period. So we were constantly working at, at being at tightening up, right? To move our portfolio down two and a bit percent over 12 months is not easy. We were making a concentrated effort to be tighter on the new deals and lower loan to values and, and, qual- and better quality of business. So, you know, it's been a concentrated effort. Um, we're, we spend a lot of time looking at the properties, a lot of time working out the exit strategies before we approve anything. Um, and, and, you know, we're underwriting based on the fact that there could be a 5% softening. We're, we're trying to focus most of our business right now on properties under a million dollars. We find that that's a healthier market. There's less, um, less movement on value. So obviously we're not doing a lot in the core of the city. We're doing more in the kind of the 905-519 area code. But like there's a lot of detached semis, townhouses that are good quality under a million dollars. Then the market's big because then if you do have something go wrong, you've got people that can put 5% down and get mortgage insurance and purchase the houses. So that, that's kind of how we're looking at things right now. No, that, that's great, Nick. And, um, you know, I just want to be mindful of time. But I think what you said really, really nicely summarizes the benefits of, uh, of, of investing with River Rock, not only having the experience uh, as a, your team and yourself as an experienced lender through different market cycles, but being able to apply those insights and being able to dynamically position the portfolio to optimize what the current market conditions are. So um, certainly thank you again for your time and, and your insights. I know it's a very interesting topic and we do have uh, other questions that certainly if there are other questions for Nick or, or Nine Point, please contact your Nine Point representative and we'll be sure to, uh, to answer those questions. So once again, thank you very much, Nick, and uh, thank you, everybody. Thank you very much.